0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: As always, thank you to our sponsor, Zai. Zai is a global fintech that's innovating within its own field of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. By supporting them, you're supporting us. Please check them out at hellozai.com. Innovation is how businesses stay ahead of the competition. And adapt to market conditions that change in unpredictable and uncertain ways. In the first decade of the 21st century, high end cuisine underwent a profound transformation. Industry that prioritized consistency and reliability, it turned into an industry where constant change was a competitive necessity. A top restaurant's reputation and success have become so closely bound up with its ability to innovate that a new, organisational form, the culinary R&D team has emerged. The best of these R&D teams continually expand the frontiers of food. They invent a constant stream of new dishes, new cooking processes and methods and even new ways of experiencing food. How do they achieve this nonstop novelty? And what can culinary research and development teach us about organisational innovation? Our guest opens up the black box of elite culinary R&D to provide essential insights. Drawing on years of unprecedented access to the best and most influential culinary R&D teams in the world, he reveals how they exemplify what he calls the uncertainty mindset. Such a mindset intentionally incorporates uncertainty into organizational design, rather than simply trying to reduce risk. It changes how organizations hire set goals, and motivate team members and leads organizations to work in highly unconventional ways. His book upends conventional wisdom about how to organize for innovation and offers practical insights for businesses trying to become innovative and adaptable. We welcome the author of the Uncertainty Mindset, Innovation Insights from the Frontiers of Food, Vaughan Tan. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Great news for our audience today, Vaughn, we have a copy up for grabs, just sign up to the innovation .io newsletter, and you will be in with a chance to win this brilliant book. It's absolutely brilliant book. And maybe we'll just say a word on it beforehand, Vaughn, because I want our audience to know, this book explores the frontiers of food but it actually derives lots of principles that are so useful across the full spectrum of organisations going through transformation and innovation efforts.
0: The book was written to really focus on this very unusual world of culinary R&D. But the whole idea was to show what that world has to teach people who are trying to come up with new ideas, design their organisations to be innovative, not just in food, but in a whole range of other industries as well. So I came out of software. I think that's one of the places where I think this has relevance, but I think it has relevance much more broadly than that.
1: And I look forward to sharing deeply some of the principles you've derived and how this can apply to everybody working in innovation, whether they're the leader of a company, a legacy organization, a startup, a scale-up. You talk about all these different businesses and how they can benefit from the uncertainty mindset. One of the things you talk about, Vaughn, at the very start of the book is to understand the uncertainty mindset, we first need to understand what is the difference between uncertainty and risk.
0: Absolutely. I, I think that's certainly, for me, one of the most important distinctions to make, which often doesn't get made or gets made wrongly. And for me, the difference between uncertainty and risk is very simple. In a situation of risk, you don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you know all the possible outcomes that might happen. And you must also know how likely each one of those outcomes is. Once you've got both knowledge of all the possible outcomes, as well as the probabilities of each outcome, you can calculate what to do to achieve the best outcome in expectation. That's a really a risk mindset. Uncertainty, on the other hand, is very different. In a situation of uncertainty, you may not know all the possible outcomes. You may know some of them, but you won't know all of them. You may know some of the probabilities of a particular outcome happening if you take any particular action, but you may not know all the probabilities. And you may not actually know the probabilities with accuracy. So, if you think about what the coronavirus situation was like, for instance, sometime around, I would say, June or July last year, we didn't know what the outcomes would be. We didn't know how likely those outcomes would be. We were not in a situation of risk. We were in a situation of true uncertainty, right? So, I think. In general, when we talk about uncertainty, generally, people mix up risk and uncertainty. Right? If you throw a fair dice or you toss a fair coin, you can expect to know in expectation what the outcome will be. But that's about the only set of real-world situations in which you are truly facing a situation of risk. Most of the time, you don't know what the full range of possible outcomes will be. You don't know how probable they are. And so you can't use the same way of thinking about actions relating to outcomes that you can with risk. You have to adopt a completely different way of thinking about it, which I think of as the uncertainty mindset.
1: One of the big surprises you had was actually finding so many principles and so many insights from the world of food, because your background in software, you've been part of these teams that were on the cutting edge of innovation and R&D and Google. And all of a sudden, you discovered so many principles that were in the food industry. And let's share here your first impression of one of those businesses that you studied, Think Food Tank. And you just say here that it was haphazard, ramshackle operation, something totally unconventional for you. Let's share this first instance from this team.
0: When I first went to Think Food Tank, I really didn't know what to expect. It was the first time I'd ever done research with a culinary R&D team it was quite an unusual situation that they let me come in to observe them anyway. And so when I when I show up, I wasn't really expecting I, I wasn't really expecting anything. If I was expecting anything, I was expecting maybe a laboratory of some sort with people in a very sort of well-controlled, segregated environment where they're working on some new dish or something. And then in a very well isolated space, developing it to the point where it's complete and then sending it in to the restaurant, because this is kind of what you expect if you think about research and development in pharmaceuticals or in semiconductors or even in software, right? The innovation happens for the most part in a part of the organization that is isolated from everyone else. It's highly resourced. There are specific people who are given a lot of resources to do it, a lot of time, they're I mean, it's the innovation and R&D parts of businesses tend to be usually separated from the operational parts of businesses. So the first time I go to Think Food Tank, um, it's in D.C. And the interesting thing about Think Food Tank is at that time, they did not even have a physical location, which was their office. They simply moved around to all of the restaurants that were in the group that they were the R&D unit of. And they would just find whatever space was available at that time and they would do whatever it was that they were working on right then in the middle of a service rush. And so the first time I go down, what I saw was what looked like a bunch of cooks in a basement kitchen with no windows, very low ceilings. And when I realized that this was an innovation team that was actually really, really good, you know, they managed to reduce the cost of production in this restaurant group while still coming up with new ideas all the time. They made the restaurant group very profitable And yet they didn't have all of the trappings of conventional R&D. And even so, they were really successful and they were a happy team. Uh, That sort of immediately said to me, there is something interesting going on here, which we should look at in detail. And the reason why it's interesting to look at it, at least I thought at the time was, if you can do innovation in this way, A, it's cheaper and it, it seems to be faster. And it also seems to be more effective than the traditional expensive isolate your R&D team in a skunk work somewhere way of thinking about things that was very conventional. And in some ways, it's still very conventional today.
1: Let's build on that, Vaughn, because you do this brilliantly in the book, you introduce your research and your findings from the industry of food, and then you apply the principles to any industry. And I loved how you described this For example, a well-functioning, established restaurant has processes, procedures. Everybody sticks to their own swim lane, exactly like we see in large organizations. And even with this, the ingredients are steady and reliable. And that's what's changed. If we actually take that principle of working in a steady-state environment and then go, well, that doesn't exist anymore... What are the principles we can take from your research in the food industry and apply it to any industry?
0: I think that the first thing to say about that is the reason why restaurants do this thing where, as you put it, everyone is in their own swim lane is because you have to think about restaurants the way we understand restaurants as really serving, in, in reality, they serve one function. They're factories for producing food. If you think about any kind of production process, the first time you make anything, you are unlikely to make it perfectly. You're likely to waste stuff like physical ingredients or materials. You're also likely to take more time than you would normally take because you're learning how to do something. So with any kind of production process, whether it's artisanal or industrial, the idea is to figure out how to make the thing. And then once you figured it out, that's when you start to exploit your knowledge of how to make the thing and so the reason why restaurants have this highly structured organization they've got very routinized recipes they've got a kitchen hierarchy where everyone knows what they're doing but they only do that thing is precisely for that reason it's so that they can learn how to do that thing and once they learn how to do it they stop wasting as much stuff they stop wasting as much time and that's how you can get a consistent product and also that's how you can make that consistent product for a profit because margins in the restaurant business are usually very slim now I think the challenge comes when you also want to not only produce something which is consistent, but you want to innovate as well. You want to make something new, but still make it well. That's when you need to start bringing in these ideas that I'm talking about, right? So a really important thing, which I want to say is that if a business, whether it's a restaurant or anything else, only wants to make the same thing again and again, and just make it consistently, they don't need what I'm working on. If what they want to do is to make things consistently, but also come up with new ideas, but also innovate, but also be able to adapt and change as the environment around them is changing, then they need some of these ideas. If you want to be adaptable so that you can innovate, because innovation and adaptability are intricately connected to each other, then what you need as a business is you need to simply admit that you don't know what the future will be. Now, the moment you do that, you've already got the uncertainty mindset, right? Because you don't assume that you know what you're going to do in the future or how you're going to do it. Therefore, you start to think, okay, how do I hire people when I don't know what they will do? How do I set goals when I don't necessarily know what they will be? And how do I motivate people to want to fail instead of what we currently do, which is to motivate people to do things which we already know they need to do and that they know how to do? Um, The uncertainty mindset, is it really is, at its core, just saying, I don't know how the future will turn out. And then the reason why it's powerful is it changes the way you act. It changes the way you hire people. It changes the way you set goals. And then also changes the way you motivate people and the team inside your organization.
1: And I love when you speak about that. And and I'd love to come back to that in a little while because where you go with this is into how do you hire for these people and how do you build the teams? How does the team interact? How do they get feedback? And you also talk about the emotional trauma that these teams goes through. But I wanted to go back a little bit because one of the things you talk about is there's a huge upheaval, a huge change in the world of high-end cuisine. And as a result, everybody has to adapt and the people within the organization need to adapt. And you tell us here, it's both the food itself and the social and cultural context in which it is embedded, the preferences and preconceptions of critics and diners. So there's a whole shift in trends and also in dynamics within that industry. It'd be great to get an overview of those changes because that can be reflected in any industry.
0: One thing that's interesting is we see a lot of industries undergoing rapid upheaval and The upheaval happens very fast. And so we we always think that the thing that caused the upheaval must be something that happened when the upheaval became noticeable. In food, really this innovation in food thing is only maybe two decades old. But what I find and what I talk about in the book is that the reason why you have this sudden upheaval two decades ago is not because something happened two decades ago. It's that there were a whole bunch of independently not very important things, trends that were beginning to take shape that by themselves were not noticeable, would not have created this upheaval. But when all of them sort of gather steam together and they hit at the same time, that's when something noticeable happens, right? So in order to understand big change in an industry, you need to understand all of the otherwise invisible change. And I think this is true of what happened in, for instance, the transition to fast fashion from slow fashion, the transition to the new form of media from newspapers, the transition to the new form of music and TV distribution from the old form, cable TV. All of these things, I think, have done what looks like a phase change over a very short period of time. But I think the dynamics and the mechanisms underlying that, uh, you have to look much further back in time. You have to look, I think, as you point out, Not only at the thing itself, you know, the food, it changes from normal, not very much innovation to lots of innovation all the time. Or the newspapers go from newspapers to online web things, Twitter, Instagram, all this stuff. Don't just look at the thing itself. You also have to look at the social context in which that thing is consumed, because that gives you clues about how that change happened. And so just very quickly, in the context of food, what was interesting about the change is there were in the past, arbiters of taste, right? People who were like reviewers for the Michelin Guide, um, major food reviewers in the big newspapers and magazines. And those were people who held the, you know, they held the power to direct people to go to a restaurant. They were kingmakers, if you will. And not immediately, and also not with one single thing. With a a few different trends led to the power in tastemaking, going away from this relatively small number of professional tastemakers to a much larger set of bloggers, forum writers, social media people, influencers, we would call them today. Now, that was only one of the things, right? So you've got this movement away from professionals who understand technique to amateurs I use amateurs not in a derogatory sense. I simply use amateurs in the sense that this is not their day job. From professionals whose day job it is to understand food, who therefore understand the food, to amateurs whose day job is something else but who like food. And if you are not a professional eater of and commentator on food, what do you care about? You end up caring a lot about whether or not the thing you ate is new because that's obvious right? Whereas technique is maybe a little bit harder to get. So one of the things that led to this transition away from let's focus on technique and how well a dish is implemented to let's focus on how new the menu or the dish is, is because you went from a world where the tastemakers were professionals to a world where the tastemakers were amateurs. And there were a whole bunch of other things that happened as well. When uh, you saw in the last 10 or 15 years, well, actually 15 or 20 years, you see this Emergence of social networks, whether they're online or offline, between chefs. Right. So you get communities of people who are interested in innovation professionally in cooking, starting to meet each other and talk to each other. You you create platforms of knowledge. Uh, one of the books that I talk about, one of the teams that I visited, uh, was the team that made the book Modernist Cuisine. And Modernist Cuisine, you look at it today, and you see it's a you know multi-volume book. That contains a lot of information about cooking. But if you think back to when it came out in, I think it was 2011, in 2011, all that knowledge had not been assembled in one place. It's a little bit like saying, until that time, if you really wanted to use science to cook and be innovative in cooking, you had to go do all the research yourself. You had to go understand how to read scientific papers yourself. Most chefs don't have the training to do this and have no inclination to do it. All of a sudden, this book appears. It's expensive, but it becomes a reference thing. You don't have to go do all this work yourself anymore. It's all there. It's been tested for you. All of a sudden, the activation energy for innovation based on science goes way down. You know, It's like a catalyst in a reaction. The reaction is the same, but now the energy needed to get the reaction going goes way down. So that's another one of the things. I, I What I'm trying to argue, I think, is that there were a whole bunch of individually small, apparently trivial events like social networks of chefs, like the the professional to amateur transition in critics and tastemakers, like the publication of a book like Modernist Cuisine that by themselves maybe wouldn't have had much of an effect. But if you see that all of them are happening around the same time and they all kind of feed off of each other, that's what causes this flip. And then once the flip happens, that's when it, begun, it begins to take on a life of its own.
1: I love that because it actually reframed things for me. And this is what your book does brilliantly. You, you talk about this, for example, I, I know nothing about the world of high-end cuisine. I've eaten a few nice meals in my time, but I don't know anything to the research, the depth of research you've done. But I'm able to see it from a different perspective and kind of go, ah, I can see the similarities here. Like, for example, even, even your book or these books behind me on innovation and change and transformation, having them out there, influences me differently a podcast like this influences our listeners differently then there's loads of networks that people are part of there's uh, uh, conferences they attend and that's influencing changes in each of their individual industries and that's what it said to me is that it's not just the desire to change based on the the needs of society and the needs of the business environment it's actually the ecosystem every node of the network changes everything in the network I wanted to jump to this next excerpt because this really speaks to innovation practices all over the world. You say, often considered one of the best and most technically sophisticated American chefs, a guy called Thomas Keller, he once said, you were taught how to make a hollandaise sauce and you were never really taught why it works. You were just taught how to make it and you were taught how to fix it if it broke. And that was it. And you emphasize, Vaughn, that This approach made many recipes seem like temperamental formulae that could not be tampered with and and without chancing failure, and thus made it very difficult to think them as systems that could be taken apart and then reconfigured. I love that because you think about a recipe and a recipe is just a modular assembly of lots of different parts. And actually many, many times because we're so busy for the predictability of things, we don't actually t- take time to take them apart and reassemble them in different ways. I love this as a principle. Maybe you'll take us through this.
0: Yeah, I, I think a good way, especially if the audience is interested in or works in you know, tech, right, is to think about the recipe as code. Like the recipe is it's code. It gets run. And the inputs into this are a person who understands how to follow instructions, like a computer that knows how to follow um, machine-level code, and then obviously materials. Now, the Thomas Keller quote that you, that you just read out is interesting because there are several ways that you can think about how to learn how to do something that you know how to do. Right. One way is to say, here is an exact sequence of things follow it exactly, and it will produce the desired outcome. That's actually what he's talking about. If you don't do it this way, it won't work. Therefore, do it this way. If it doesn't work, these are the things you did wrong. Let's fix them in the following ways, and then it'll work. Now, that approach, I think, works when the conditions in which you're operating are quite predictable. Like If you can always say that These conditions will apply and they will always be the same. The ingredients will always be like this. Then you can restrain the actions that you have to take to a relatively small number. And then you can learn them by heart. Now, one thing which Keller also, I I think, believes, certainly good chefs who do innovation believe, is that really good cooking that is creative needs to respond to the conditions that you're facing at any time. You can't just go by rote. And in fact, there are several chefs that I, I talked to throughout the course of the book who say that one of the problems is when your cooks believe that a recipe can always contain everything that you need to know to make a dish well. In fact, that's not true. So you know, if we sort of take an example that's outside of the world of food, essentially the insight here is that we often learn something whole and are told that this whole thing works like that and cannot be broken apart. And we cannot tear it apart on the inside, open up the black box, learn how it works so that we can use a part of it that we want and discard the part of it that we don't. And even though we don't think of ourselves as doing this, in organizations, we do this all the time. So one example I'll give you, it's an example I actually really hate, right? I, I hate the thing that this is an example of. Um, you may have heard of a thing called objectives and key results. It's a thing which when I was working at Google, this was the way Google as a company created rules and a process around setting goals for individuals, rolling up the groups, rolling up the divisions into the company as a whole. Now, if you think about how Google has been obviously very successful, what people do is they look at Google and they say, okay, let's do what Google did. You know, this is the empiricism again, and this is how you make a Hollandaise sauce, right? Let's make the Google Hollandaise sauce and let's take what it's done with say, OKRs and let's implement it ourselves. Now, the problem with OKRs is if you've ever done OKRs anywhere, whether it's at Google or anywhere else, you know that they take weeks. It takes weeks to do it yourself and then you roll it up to your group and then that rolls up. It rolls up all the way up to the top of the company. And by the time you get to the point where you're implementing the actions you would take to achieve the goals and the objectives that you set for yourself, the situation has changed, right? This kind of long cycle, objective goal setting process I think doesn't really work when what you're trying to do is work in an environment that is changing rapidly and changing unpredictably. And yeah, this is what we do. Like, If you go to almost every successful company or trying to be a successful company, there will be some version of this long roll-up objectives and key results setting exercise now, because there is something called institutional isomorphism uh, in organizations and in social settings. You see a company or an organization that's successful, You want to be successful, therefore you do what they do, even if what they do may have very little relationship to why they're successful, but we don't open up the black box to see whether or not that's true or not, right? This to me is the real insight behind what Keller was saying about how cooks get taught how to cook. It's that if this is the way you are taught how to cook, it's very hard to break that open so that you learn how to cook a different way by understanding why something happens so that you can say, okay, The way I want this to be done, there could be many, many ways of doing it. As long as I understand what I'm trying to achieve, I can use whatever tools I have, not just the tools that have been given to me by my training. And that's what the really creative chefs that I worked with uh, were able to do. And that's actually also part of the uncertainty mindset. right? It's not saying, I know not only what's going to happen, but also how I'm going to get there. It's saying, I don't know what's going to happen. And therefore, this is a bit terrifying. Maybe I have to learn a new way of getting there. Maybe I have to learn a new way of figuring out where there is. And that's what gives you the ability to innovate. And it's not just true in food. It's also true in really any other setting, right? Technology, fashion, music, all of these industries and many others. You only get something new when you're willing to say, I don't know what the new thing will be and I don't know how to get there yet. And that's a really important thing.
1: That's a difficult thing. I I was thinking about that from if you're a leader of a business, it takes a huge change in your what got you to where you are today? It, you know we've we've heard this, Marshall Goldsmith's whole won't get you to where you need to be tomorrow, but it also takes a lot of humility from leaders to kind of go, I don't know the answers here. I do have an uncertainty mindset, and that changes the whole principles throughout the organization. Did you see that, for example, with the chefs or, or those people who ran the restaurants with their R and D teams?
0: Absolutely. I I think you've put your finger on a really important point, which is it's actually both actually very easy to say, I don't know, let's figure it out together, but practically and emotionally very hard to say that, especially if you're a leader and especially if, if you are the, the creative leader as well as the actual leader, right? So I did find that a lot of the leaders that I worked with, the people who started the restaurants and the people who are running the restaurants, they also found it very hard to say, I don't know. But the important thing is They did not let that difficulty stop them from saying that. So they they didn't say it as often as they should have. They didn't say it as often as they could have, but at least they did not say it at all. So all of the leaders that I worked with, they were all willing to say, I don't know what outcome is best. Let's figure it out. Or they were also willing to say, I know that this is what we're trying to achieve, but I don't know how to get there. Let's figure it out. And if you think about it, those are the two essential prerequisites for figuring out a new place to go and a new way to get there, right? So it, it's, you're correct. It is absolutely one of the hardest things that a leader needs to do in order to create an organization that is good at innovating. And, and I want to sort of highlight the actually important, difficult part. The important, difficult part is the emotional part. It's very difficult for a leader who got to where, as you point out, uh, he or she got to because they always knew how to get things done, to once they get to that point where everyone is now looking to them for guidance, be able to say to the team that they've built, I don't know, let's figure it out together. And it's emotionally terrifying, right? Because if, as a leader, you don't have the ability to say, I know the correct way to do it, and I know where we're going, what is it that makes you a leader, Now, I think the problem is that's actually the completely wrong way to say what a leader is, right? A leader is not the person who has the right answers. A leader is the person who can help you figure out what questions to ask so that you figure out what answers you're trying to get. Because there are some questions which, from a cultural perspective for your organization or from a moral perspective for your organization, the organization simply will not ask. The leader is there to figure that stuff out and to help the rest of the organization get there. So absolutely, it's emotion it is the fear of being seen as someone who doesn't know what he or she is doing that prevents leaders from doing that. And that fear is probably one of the biggest contributors to organizations that fail to innovate because whenever leaders think that they know what's happening, inevitably they don't. It's extraordinarily rare for a leader to really know where to go to get the new thing that will be the transformative change for the company. Uh, And the leaders who are able to swallow their fear and trust their teams enough to say, I don't know, let's figure it out together, they tend to be the ones that lead teams that are able to come up with new ideas.
1: I love the fact that you studied with and you are, uh, you know, a, a devotee as well as I am of Amy Edmondson, because that that's what you just spoke to there is exactly her work, this whole idea of psychological safety, we constantly talk about that. From an innovation perspective, you're creating the right conditions for the innovation to happen.
0: Absolutely. I I think what's interesting about Amy's work is that we often think of psychological safety as something which we we create an environment where psychological safety exists so that people who are junior feel comfortable doing things uh, like, you know, identifying areas where they think things are being done wrong or things could be improved. I think we also need to start to think a lot more about creating environments Internal environments as an in internal within the person environments where leaders also feel the same level of psychological safety, right? Because if you think about it, it is bad if a junior person in your team doesn't feel comfortable speaking up. It's also bad, and in some ways it could be worse for the company as a whole, if the leaders don't feel able to simply say, I don't know where things are, I don't know where things are supposed to be going. We need to figure it out together. So I, I think we, we need to sort of open up the idea of psychological safety in its sort of practitioner perspective, to not only look at how you create safety for the people in your organisation, but as a leader, also, how do you create how do you make yourself the kind of person that feels safe, uh, to be vulnerable to people criticising you for not knowing what you're doing, right? Because that's actually probably the way that you will become more successful as an organisation as a leader of the organisation.
1: I think that's such a, a key point, Vaughn, because you think about a leader of an organization and say they're the leader of a a legacy organization that's all of a sudden experiencing environmental stress and they all of a sudden say to the board listen i don't have all the answers and then the board start to go wait a second he he or she doesn't have all the answers and then all of a sudden it becomes oh maybe there's a target on your back and that's how it may feel for so many leaders
0: well so You pointed to something which I think is also really important, which is the fear comes not only when you say to people who are your subordinates, I don't know. It also comes when you are speaking to your, I guess, your bosses, your board of directors, your, you know, whatever the governance mechanism is for your organization. That's also important because if you are unable to say, I don't know, and you have to sort of pretend that you do know what's going on, even when you don't. That's when, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but pretending that we know that the situation will turn out a certain way and acting as if it will, even when we are pretty sure that it won't, is one of the reasons why we ended up with the coronavirus pandemic in the situation that we are today, right? Like, oh, it's, it's got to be something which more or less should be like the flu. There's no reason to shut down air travel really quickly. Turns out, actually, there was probably a good precautionary reason to do it, but we just assumed that. We knew how to think about it in a risk framework rather than an uncertainty framework. I think the same thing could be said for a lot of leaders, especially leaders of companies that work in rapidly changing environments that are changing in unpredictable ways, which is really every incumbent nowadays in a traditional industry is facing this situation, and if as a board, you're not making it possible for your CEO and his or her C-suite to say to you, we don't really know what's going on. We need you to help us figure it out. Or "You need. we need you to help us and the rest of the organization figure it out. I, I think the governance of companies is also missing a big trick, right? So I, I, I agree. It's a, It's a huge problem and one that we generally don't tend to talk about enough.
1: We, we might come back to that at the very end, because you kind of give a wrap up of all, all those principles. If you're working in HR and L&D, you got to stay tuned because Vaughn also gives insights into the types of people and the structures of teams and the principles of those teams, the values of those teams that are so essential to make innovation happen. It's counterintuitive, especially if you're in an, a legacy organisation. So stick with us for that. But I wanted to get to something else Vaughn, which was when people think of innovation, they think of this big overarching thing. But there's lots of different nodes of a network of innovation. So there's lots of places you can innovate. And you say for high end cuisine today, new dishes can be made using four broad strategies. This gives us insights into our own business our own industries. You say one number one, improving existing methods, which is incremental innovation Two, applying methods or ingredients from a different context knowledge translation translation, combining existing methods and ingredients in new ways, combinational innovation, or by creating a new way to explain the dish to the customer, which is narrative innovation. I love all that. And I thought maybe to explain these, we take the example you give for those people interested of fat duck and their innovation team and how they brought this beautiful dish, counting sheep to life. I love this story.
0: Sheep was an interesting, I mean, it's a it's a very interesting dish. It was created by the Fat Ducks innovation team uh, for the new relaunch menu when they closed for a year to refurbish their restaurant for the first time in decades and to sort of change a lot of their menu quite profoundly. One of the things that they really wanted to do was they really wanted to create a narrative thread that ran through the entire, the entire arc of the meal, right? So the meal would be like being told a story in food. And because we're so used to hearing stories told in movies or in TV shows or in podcasts even, uh, we don't really think about how hard it is to tell a story when we don't have the usual tools or building blocks of storytelling. Dishes are, you know, they're static, right? They don't move in time. You cannot really connect them the way you connect words, sentence structures, paragraphs, and so, The Fat Duck team had to think about how to take things that they knew, which is ingredients, a service environment, dishes, and learn how to sort of make them into analogs of building blocks of story. So one of the parts of the story was the end of the day. So the new Fat Duck menu has the structure of a day that you spend and you go to various places. But when you come to the end of the day, you know, you've had a great, really incredibly tiring, but really fun day. And you're drowsy and you're going to sleep. And the idea behind counting sheep was to sort of create the feeling in a dish of that time when you're just about to go to bed, you know, you're ready to go to bed and you just haven't gone to bed yet. And you're really tired, but pleasantly tired. And so if that's the, if that's the goal, right, you're trying to create a dish that will create that sensation at that time in the meal, which is close to the end. How do you do it? So If you want to do that, it turns out what you have to do is you have to figure out new ways of using existing techniques. You have to figure out new ways of using existing ingredients. But the most important thing that you have to figure out is how to integrate the story of the dish and what the guest is going to taste into the broader story of the meal. And so what they had to end up doing was they ended up uh, creating not even just a new dish, I think in the end it ended up being, remind me if, I, if I'm if i forgetting, I think it's a tonka bean flavored custard uh, because that tastes like vanilla, it makes you feel warm. It, it's a warm feeling, creamy dish with very sort of nursery textures and flavors served on what appears to be a floating cloud to have this sensation of a gradual separation from reality. Uh, served with spoons that have felt-covered handles so that you never touch anything that's hard or cold. You only feel soft things. Uh, They really were using all of these tools, right? New techniques, new ingredients, new methods, uh, and also a new way of telling the story of what you're getting. You know, so the dish comes to the table. This is part of the narrative. It comes to the table and it's floating. And this will be the first time ever that anyone has been served a floating dish. Like it, it, they, they ended up having to use a, a magnetic levitation pillow, but it's a pillow that looks light, but it actually has like a, you know, a bunch of electronic circuitry on the inside on a platter that has a power source, but it comes to the table and it's floating and it looks light. And some of the research that they did with um Charles, with I think Charles Spence uh, at Oxford uh, shows that, you know, if you, if you give people the, the visual of something that's light, they perceive it also as being light. So they were, they were trying to do that as part of the narrative too. But the, the whole dish was constructed to achieve a narrative function. And in order to achieve that narrative function, they have to use all the tools, new materials, new ingredients, new methods, and new ways of telling the story, including with a floating pillow, uh, to, achieve, to achieve that outcome.
1: I love it, man. You're you're making me hungry now. Thinking about it,
0: (laughs) they're still (laughs) serving it. You can still
1: go. I certainly will when things clear up a little bit. I I love this next quote because you take us through the journey of the team and the the optional stress they place themselves under, the the sticks that they use to push themselves along, all those type of things. But this quote I thought was really valuable because many times we talked about leadership just a moment ago many times people are afraid to make mistakes. And they're afraid, what if I have to abandon that attempt, and they don't see that there's any assets in the ashes from the attempt that they had. And you tell us the landscape of possibilities is vast, mountainous and hidden in shadow. The culinary R&D teams explores it with a tiny flashlight. As they experiment seeing only a little piece of that landscape at a time and often reaching an impasse. What the team finds is then it has to interpret and make sense of it all. It is due to both luck and skill that this exploration sometimes leads to the creation of a new dish that works. Many dishes are abandoned during the development, sometimes on the cusp of a breakthrough that some other chef or team or chefs may later make I thought that was very valuable to say. For example, I may not, it may not be apparent that I've achieved, but I've failed myself one one more step towards success.
0: I think that metaphor, that visual metaphor of this huge dark landscape, it's really mountainous. You're not sure where the prize is located. You've got a really small flashlight and all you see is what the little flashlight illuminates and you've got to make sense of it and figure out whether you're on the right path and you never know whether you're on the right path. To me, it's not just... The experience of the culinary r and d team. This is you know you are a startup trying to figure out what your product market fit will be. This is exactly what you've got. You've got a situation where you could be doing one of a whole huge number of possible things. You can only ever explore a small number of them because that's all the resources that are available to you. You've got to make sense of your experiments or your investigations based on your current view of the world, and you may give up, right? You may pivot just as you're about to be successful in the thing you pivoted away from. You may pivot and become successful, but only if you spend a lot more time, but you may give up. You may run out of funding. I think the metaphor is exactly like, I mean, it's not exactly like, the metaphor is not just for food. It's the metaphor of people trying to find something new in a world where they don't have full knowledge of what the world contains. So the I think what's, what's really interesting about that situation is the moment you admit that to yourself, right? So when you say to yourself, Innovation is not about knowing where I am going and how to get there. It's, it looks like this, the landscape is dark. I've got a little flashlight and I'm going to do the best I can. It, in some ways, I think what it does is it reduces the psychological overhead of doing innovation, right? There is no, there's no longer this idea that success is guaranteed or even probable. In fact, success is unlikely. Failure is much more probable. But if you do it enough, chances are much higher that you will come up with something new. And if you do it enough, you also don't just come up with things that are new. You figure out how to make sense of them, how to interpret them in a way that makes them a valuable new thing, right? So a good example of this might be, you know, we always think of Apple as being a great product innovation company. But in reality, what it is, is they have to be good at making products. And they also have to be good at fitting them into the narrative of the time so that they become successful. And as a good example of this, you can look at two products that were very similar, but separated by timing and by narrative, right? So if you look at the uh, iPhone launched into a world where everyone said, nobody will want a thing that does all of these things and is a phone, we already have cell phones, that's good enough. And yet next thing you know, incredibly successful. And then you look a few years before that and they launched the Newton, if you recall. And people said the same thing, who will want this? I think the difference between the two products, obviously the, the products themselves are not the same product, but the difference between the products is also between the Newton and the iPhone, Apple developed a better way of thinking about how to tell the story of why this product works as a product for right now. And that is that interpretive action of innovation is not, I won't say it's as important, I think it is important in a different way to the action of coming up with a new chemical or coming up with a new process or coming up with a new design of the thing itself, right? It's always the thing itself, and the sociocultural context in which it's embedded that you also have access to through narrative. Um, and both of them are really important. And if you acknowledge that the world is sort of dark and vast and you only have a small flashlight, you stop sort of obsessing with using the flashlight to find exactly the right thing. And you start to also think, okay, now that I've found this thing, how can I use it to make something which not only is new to the world, but it's also useful to the world. So it's not just something which is novel, it's also something which is a valuable innovation. And that I think is, is a big change in mindset that is important if you want to build an innovation team.
1: I mentioned to our audience now for those people who work in HR and LMD and recruitment, this next section will be extremely important because those people who are not afraid of the dark start to emerge. And they are often a different type of mindset than people who like to know what's going on. They like to have uh, floodlights rather than torchlights. And this will appeal massively. By the way, Vaughn, I was dying to share this quote to our audience, because so many times change makers and innovators and people who work in R&D teams feel like they're a bit weird, or they don't actually fit in legacy organisations. And uh, (laughs) <laughs> like like my, myself included i'm sure you feel that a little bit yourself and you tell us adopting the uncertainty mindset actually helps us understand how teams works but also how to search for new members for those teams and how they teach each other the crucial knowledge that's important for the uncertainty mindset you say this undiluted view of the future was foundational. It had broad, similar, wide ranging effects on each team. The uncertainty mindset led them to work in similar ways despite being so different on the surface. Put plainly, the uncertainty mindset made these teams work unconventionally. These differences were visible in how they found new te- team members, how they set and pursued goals, and how they motivated themselves. These counterintuitive methods of organization founded on a view of the future as being dominated by uncertainty, were in turn responsible for their success, while they continuously innovated. I thought that was so important. Again, if you're a leader of an organization, oftentimes you'll think, oh, those innovation weirdos or those people who are working in that new part of the business, they don't get it. And that's exactly the point. They're different. And We need to lean into that diversity of thought.
0: People who do innovation work, they have to be okay with not knowing what the future will be, right? That's definitionally true. If you're going to make something which is novel, it cannot be like what was not novel, what was known in the past. And therefore, we we cannot know perfectly how to make this new thing, or even what the new thing will be, or even why it's valuable. So, the kinds of people who are really good at doing something which is well-known and getting really good at doing it are generally not going to be the same people who are really excited about trying something new, learning new stuff, and figuring out some new outcome that we've never had before. I'm not saying that the two are always different people. It's just people prefer different things, right? There are some people who like knowing what they're doing, getting really good at doing it. And there are other people who don't mind or, or even enjoy not knowing what they're doing because it's exciting. And if you are in human resources or l and I think one interesting question to ask is if you are using the same selection method to hire people who are meant to execute on known processes with known outcomes... As you are using to hire people who are meant to fail constantly and learn how to make new outcomes, why are you using the same method? Because it stands to reason that if the two kinds of people are quite different and need to be good at doing different things and want to do different things, the way you hire them should also be different. So, most of how human resources works from a hiring perspective is oriented at people who need to be hired into roles where we know what their roles need to consist of, and we know how they will be considered to be successful if they're successful, right? So well-understood jobs. The problem with innovation is, if as anyone who's ever done any kind of innovation work will know, innovation work is not a well-defined job. By definition, innovation work cannot be a well-defined job because you don't know what the innovation is until you've done it. And so if what you want to do is hire innovation people or people who are innovative, whether or not they're in an innovation part of the company, uh, I would argue that there's a different way you have to think about how to find those people and then bring them into your company. And that way is what I call negotiated joining, uh, using open-ended roles. And I'll explain, these are a lot of concepts to pull out, but they're related to each other. Uh, I'll I'll start with just sketching a kind of a a parody of the conventional way people hire which is to say, you have a hiring manager who knows what person he or she needs to fill this role because that role is very well-defined and the, and the definitions are stable. Because the role is well-defined and the definitions are stable, they, they figure out what the ideal candidate needs to have in terms of experience or inclinations or skills. And they go out and they find as many people as they can who they think will match this, and they filter to find the person who matches them the best right? That's the traditional way of hiring. And the way that happens is you do a big recruitment call, people send in CVs, you do a CV screen, and then you do interviews. And after all of that pyramid narrows, you know, the funnel narrows all the way to the bottom, whoever drops out at the bottom is the best fit. You hire that person. Now, that doesn't really work if you don't know what job you need this person to do, which is definitionally true for innovation. So what I propose instead because I saw this happening in these teams, is instead of saying, I know exactly what this new person needs to do. Instead you say, I know that this person will definitely have to do the following things. Like let's say 50, 60, 70% of your job, we know what it has to be. You've gotta be able to do that. But 30% of your job, we don't know yet. And we're not assuming that you will know. If you can do the 70% that we do know about, come on in, try it out. And while you're here, figure out what the other 30% of your job should be that you are good at, you want to do, that you can argue with evidence, makes sense for us, and we'll see. And what that does is that 30%, which is the open-ended part of the role, becomes the subject of what I call the negotiation, right? The negotiation works not as a bargain, uh, you know, like, like a, it's not a negotiation, like a bargain between two people that you might think. It's a negotiation in the sense that the potential employee comes in and they say, okay, you know, 30% of my job has not been defined. And I see that this organization say, it's a restaurant. They, they really want someone who can for instance, bake really interesting pastry. Uh, I happen to know how to do this. I'm going to try it out and I'm going to show them what I can do and, and try and make an argument. Again, the narrative comes in, make an argument that this skill that I have, which I am good at and I want to do, is new for them and fills a need for them which they didn't even know that they had and should be the remaining 30, 15, 20, 30% of my, jo- of my job. The negotiation is I'm going to try and do something which they, the company that I'm trying to get into did not expect to need, but I'm going to show them that it's useful to them. And if I'm successful at showing that, then it becomes a part of my job, right? You're gradually, in a sense, arguing your role into being by trying things out and seeing whether or not they work. And that negotiation, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time. It only happens when the role is open-ended enough that there's part of it that's left open to negotiation and definition. But at the end of the process, what you've got is you've got people whose roles are partly built up of role components, things that they do, that they're good at, that they want to do, that everyone else has seen that they're good at, but really important, could not necessarily have been expected or anticipated by the company before they joined. right? That's where also, not incidentally, innovation comes. Like Innovation comes when you bring people in to do things that you don't know that they can do and you don't know that you need, but they know they can do and they can argue is useful to you. Right. So that, that's one sort of unusual way of thinking about the hiring process, which ends up, as you point out, with people who join the company to do things that were unexpected but are still useful. And the process of negotiating, which, I mean, we can go into this in a lot more detail if you want. The process of negotiating these roles with other people in the organization also creates a situation where everyone in the organization really knows in a lot more detail what everyone else in the organization is good at doing. And you've got this interesting situation emerging where everyone in the organization both does things and knows what everyone else is good at doing so that you don't even need a lot of the coordination that you normally need in teams. Like these teams work in a very sort of fluid, almost self-managing way. And it's kind of fun to watch. And I've been part of teams like this, not in food Uh, And it's fun to work in teams like that as well, where everyone knows what everyone else does. And you don't have to worry about sort of allocating work because everyone knows who the best person is to do it. And that person does as well. And they just pick it up.
1: One of the things I love so much about doing the show is the serendipities that emerge from it. And last week we had on Elliot Aronson sharing his book from 1972, The Social Animal we had a seven part series with D Hawk, the founder of visa and his whole idea of the chaotic organization. And the whole idea of the chaotic organization speaks exactly to what you're talking about, where we see this in nature all the time. And you mentioned, for example, the swarm of bees and different bees have different jobs within the hive, and the same within an organization. But I wanted to mention last two weeks ago, when Elliot was on the show, he talked about a concept in schools. So he introduced this new concept in the 70s in Texas, where there was huge segregation in in schools. So you had blacks and whites and uh, uh, kids from Mexico and all, and they were all physically fighting in the hallways. It was a horrific time. And he brought in this concept called the jigsaw classroom. And jigsaw is a methodology that can be brought into schools. And it reminded me so much of what you talked about these teams and how they interacted. So the idea that jigsaw classroom was was if you think about a classroom, you know, Professor Tan asks a question, everybody's competing with each other and kind of going, "Oh, oh, oh, I know the answer." Versus when each of them are given a specific task that, that they're good at or they need to learn, they have a piece of the jigsaw. And then they start to collaborate and cooperate and that reminded me so much of what you're talking about here because this is exactly the characteristic you saw on these teams
0: just just again open-endedness just means as the hiring company you don't assume that you know everything that this person needs to do to be a good employee you leave part of it open for negotiation i think just by creating that and by creating the the context and the conditions in which these roles can be negotiated You actually give people who are joining your company, as well as people who are already in your company, the ability to find roles for themselves that are complementary to each other and help each other become a better whole than they could be individually, right? Uh, the, The interesting thing about negotiating roles between many people in the group is that usually what happens is sometimes parts of someone's role gets taken away by someone else who can show that he or she is better at doing it. And you might expect that that could cause some turf warfare, people stepping on other people's toes. But in fact, the fact that negotiating these roles is such a, an everyday low level, uh, it's it almost feels trivial and quotidian. It means that once you see that someone else is better at doing this thing than you, than you are, you just say, okay, fine, you do it and I'll go do something else, right? There there is this fluidity about what people do that isn't just completely haphazard. You're not saying everyone can do everything all the time, whenever they want. You're saying do things as long as you can show yourself and other people in the team that you can do them. You've got to prove it by doing it. And not only do you have to prove that you can do it, other people have to agree that it's worth doing. And if the intersection of both of these things happens, It's okay, right? So what happens is roles evolve, but they're always complementary. And they evolve slowly enough that there's never any feeling, well, not never, there's rarely any feeling of uh, people stepping on other people's toes because they're taking parts of responsibility away from each other. It it just feels like a more humane as well as more sensible way of building a team that has to constantly change because the demands on the team are constantly changing.
1: Two things kind of came to mind for me, and I'm sure you saw these. So you see these with the, because you work as a consultant as well to many organizations and the legacy organizations. So you have an innovator comes in, and by their very nature, and they should be, they're different. They come in, and as you said, they, they swim outside their lane. So they're outside their swim lane, they go into somebody else's uh, part of the business. And all of a sudden, that person complains to the CEO, the CEO comes down hard on the innovator, the innovator becomes demotivated, and eventually leaves. I, I experienced this myself, Vaughn, and I worked in a legacy organisation. And the, the, the mental model I had was, you know, the 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 guard that's on the gate at Buckingham Castle, you know, that idea of the big fluffy hat and that he has the, And it's like, he has this tiny little house behind him. And it was like, everybody in the organisation had one of them they're like, with their, uh, they're their, with their sword going get away from my part of the business. And there was this, just this warfare. And then, and, and, and the innovator, you're kind of going, hey, hey, man, or hey, lady, I'm, I'm just trying to help here. I have some information that I think would be useful to you. And, and instead of taking that as a compliment or a collaboration effort, they actually take it as competitive, and they feel threats, and there's resistance and fear. I'd love your thoughts on that, because this is something so many of our listeners experience.
0: That That is a, that is an, a great observation because it happens all the time. And I think we all want to find ways of diffusing or I guess, preventing escalation from even happening, right? So I think what you're pointing to is what I sometimes call the the threat response or like an immune system response from an organization to someone or something that is trying to come in and do something different, right? And that's what all innovation needs to be. So I I have several thoughts about how organizations can circumvent this immune system response, you know, like the, the immune waterfall. And one of them is when you start doing something as an innovator or as a team tasked with innovation, don't, don't start with big innovation. And in fact, this is something which uh, i point out in the part of my book called desperation by design, where you always start doing something which is difficult and very challenging, which the organization is not used to doing. You always start doing it at a level that is so low, so trivial, that the organization almost doesn't notice it's happening. And then if that works, you step it up, and then you step it up and you step it up again. It it is like the resistance training of thinking about innovation management. And the reasoning behind it is twofold, right? So one of them is, one reason why new ideas get killed in organizations is because new ideas are obviously new and they are obviously threatening to old ideas. So one way that you can prevent a new idea from dying is to keep it small and under the radar until it is so big and so obviously useful that it can only be killed by much greater effort. Now, the other reason why the kind of the gradual step up model of thinking about innovation management makes sense is because it's also cheaper that way, right? So if you start making new ideas and you immediately start by having a multi-million pound innovation project, a multimillion dollar innovation project that's fully staffed, has its own building, whatever, you know, that is not only an expensive way to draw a lot of attention to the project, it also is a way to invest a lot of money and effort into something which you don't necessarily know will work yet, which is definitionally what innovation is. Now, the alternative is to say, okay, we've got a theory. For instance, we're in a company where the business is organized by product line and therefore we are never able to innovate across product lines. And yet we talk to our customers and we hear that they want, they they represent companies that operate across product lines. And they want a solution that kind of addresses them across rather than in silos, right? So one hypothesis might be, instead of having a product-oriented innovation team, let's have a customer-oriented innovation team. This also is no longer new, but if you're in a product-oriented um, R&D or innovation context, like one of the big CPG companies, the idea of going, let's look at a single user and let's try and figure out their world and let's try and figure out what kinds of products might work for their world, regardless of what product line that fits in, that's anathema. So once, one possible outcome of doing that is you might say, let's establish a big research facility that's focused on user-centric design and let's staff it up with a lot of people and put a lot of money in. To me, what that is, is that's a, here is a big kind of pathogen, corporate antibodies will come attack it and kill it really fast the more sort of gradualist approach, which I favor is let's start with a hypothesis and let's ask what is the smallest thing we can do, the smallest project that uses only resources that we already have that do not have to be separately approved to ask the question, what would happen if we made our innovation process user-centric rather than product-centric? And that. If you frame it like that, that means that you must be able to do it without any approval at all, right? Because it's using existing resources and it's so small that you don't need to get approval from anywhere. If the result of that experiment is compelling, you at least have two resources now that you didn't have before. One, you've got some validation that your hypothesis is correct and that your approach to that hypothesis is correct. And you also have some evidence that the hypothesis is worth something. With that, you can now go and you can step it up. You can step it up and you can step it up and you can get support along the way. So I guess that was a long-winded way of answering your question. Um, How do you prevent innovators or new ideas from being crushed by the weight of old ideas and old ways of doing things? And I think the the main things are three of them. One, start really small so that the opportunity to be crushed is not given (laughs) to the idea. The second one is use the result of the really small experiment to justify a bigger experiment that will give you more evidence so that you are less likely to be crushed. And the third one is keep on cycling up. And as you cycle up, involve more and more of the organization in a complementary sense. Right. So if, for instance, that first experiment with a user-centric design process starts to throw up ideas for specific products, don't just keep them in the inside your little experiment bubble, call in the product line r R&D people who might be interested in it and say, hey, you know, we've done some work. This is something that might be really interesting to you. Do you want to work on it? And the more people you can co-opt, right? The more, the more parts of your body's immune system you can fool into thinking that you are not some kind of outside pathogen, the better. And that gradualist process, which is very unsexy, it's not, let's announce a big 5 million pound, 50 million dollar um, R and D innovation initiative. It's let's do something which is so small nobody will notice, and let's keep doing something slightly bigger until such time as the evidence that it's working is incontrovertible. Before we make an announcement, that latter idea I think is something which is unsexy but is much much more likely to work, and also is much more likely to succeed.
1: I I thought of something here, you you because you talked about innovation of the narrative. And you were kind of talking about product innovation there, or you mentioned the example of Apple, for example, but also, the innovator within the organisation needs to have a narrative for what they're doing. Because to your point there, if I start small, many people who are innovation workers will be doing lots of things that are actually a big deal. But in their mind, they're like, oh, it's not moving fast enough. I can't get there fast enough. Oh my god, I'm not getting there. And they'll become disappointed, they'll become frustrated. But then it can even be worse where maybe the person who hired them is kind of going, Hey, Aiden, what's happening here? You haven't made much progress. But you have, because you've started small, you've started to change mindsets within the organization. That can be a dangerous place to be. And it also speaks to having leadership buy in, but also having your narrative right as the innovator.
0: I actually think starting small, you're right, it can be a dangerous place to be in, in the sense that. You're starting by giving people exposure to ideas about how to do things differently. That's dangerous. But I think the idea behind starting small is always to say, even if this fails, how bad could it be? If it's so small that it doesn't, it basically doesn't cost anything. Or if it's so small that the the downside risk of failure is so minimal compared to the potential upside, maybe it it, it feels less challenging and less dangerous because it actually is less challenging and dangerous. In in a sense, every successive experiment based on your insights from the previous successful experiment or even the insights from the previous failed experiment is gradually increasing the threshold of, I guess, certainty that you have about this way of thinking about the new thing, right? And if I were to think about it from a management perspective, what I would be doing is, If I were a leader trying to run an R&D or innovation team, I would be trying to give the innovation team the ability and the autonomy, as well as possibly some of the resources, to do a lot of very small experiments without asking permission. Because asking permission a lot creates a lot of friction. What you want is you want them to ask permission for big things, but not for small things. right? so that they can experiment and fail without feeling like the small things are particularly material because they probably aren't, and to give them the context so that they design the small experiments so that they don't have massive negative ramifications on the larger organization. Like You never want, I would imagine, the R&D team or the innovation team to be, for instance, playing with your brand until it's a fairly late-stage experiment. What you always want them to do is that you want them to be doing experiments where the brand is completely isolated from the thesis underlying the experiment initially, to make those initial experiments very cheap and very small and very fast, so that you can cycle quickly, always with an explicit hypothesis about what's being tested, and then cycle up to the next experiment based on the insights from the previous one. Like this is basically, uh, this is essentially what we think of as rapid cycle innovation. But thinking about it, I think in a slightly different way, right? So not necessarily let's prototype the product, but let's prototype a way of thinking and let's test that prototype and see what that tells us about the prototype itself so that we can change the next prototype of how we think about it. So to go back to the idea of a a user-centric product development process, let's say that you begin by saying we always start by doing customer interviews based on a particular product line. like we're in like cheese whip, the, the cheese whip department, let's interview customers about what they want from cheese whip. Maybe an alternative is let's go just look at someone who is in our target demographic for buying some kind of product in this multi division company. And let's go see what's in their fridge. I mean, people also do this a lot. And let's not go in with any preconceived notions about like what products we might build out of this insightful process. Let's just go look. What are the possible downsides of doing that? Like you can easily, as the person running this experiment, go to your boss and say, there are absolutely no possible downsides. We'll go and we'll be anonymous. We won't mention the brand at all. And we'll only do it for two or three people. And we'll come back and we'll report on it. And if you like it, we can go on. If not, it'll have cost us maybe 300 bucks. Like what's the downside? So if you diffuse all of the objections before you start, it, it becomes less risky for the person who's doing it because the the bosses, the, the people senior in the hierarchy, you've already sort of diffused all the possible ways that they can misinterpret or be concerned about the thing that you're working on.
1: I really wanted to share this because I, I absolutely love this. So this is where you talk about the motivation paradox and how to keep innovators or change makers within organizations motivated to keep themselves in the discomfort zone that we all enjoy. And this is where you talk about designing for productive desperation. Great term, by the way. So Jeff Bezos in Amazon talked about staying in day one, this startup mentality, this idea of the beginner's mind, Steve Jobs said, stay hungry, stay foolish. And you say, the pattern looks like this. Many of our listeners will recognise this. You commit to a project beyond your ability, you freak out individually and collectively work like mad, somehow pull victory from the jaws of defeat, breathe a massive sigh of relief. And then when you're in the middle of one of those projects, you seem desperate, emotionally and psychologically exhausted, worried, slightly terrified was often a better description, that things wouldn't work out or worse would be disastrous. Eventually, though, you come to understand that we put ourselves into these terrible situations as a way to force ourselves to innovate, that that desperation was productive, not destructive. It was desperation, as you call desperation by design.
0: So I think this comes back to something that we were talking about before, which is this idea that we often think about the reasons why we don't do things. And we think about them cognitively, right? Here are all the reasons why Whereas the real reason why we don't do something is because we're afraid of it or it's uncomfortable. And I think for innovation, that's actually a big part of the problem. Nobody likes to do things which they've never done before. Nobody likes to fail, no matter how much they say they do. So if the biggest obstacle to trying new things, trying to learn how to do new things, trying to work in different ways is simply fear or discomfort, then you need to find a way to push yourself over that. And if you recall the sort of that there is a there's a Greek myth where Odysseus wants to hear the song of the sirens, but he knows that if he hears the song of the sirens, he will be compelled to row into the island of the sirens and be shipwrecked, and then that's disaster. And so what he does is he creates this situation where he by create by designing the situation very creatively, he is able to listen to the song of the sirens, but is not influenced by the Song of the sirens, right? So his solution is to tie himself to the mast, stop up the, you know, he he puts wax in the ears of all of his oarsmen and he tells them, do not listen to any of my orders until we've passed this island. Now row near the island and then put put the, the wax in your ears. So this idea that you've just highlighted, this idea of desperation by design is the analog of that for teams that have to do new things that are uncomfortable. If you know that doing new things is uncomfortable and that's why you avoid it, or doing new things is scary, that's why you avoid it, what you have to do is you have to put yourself in a situation where you have no choice but to do the scary, uncomfortable thing. Now, the way to do that, I talk about the design principles for desperation projects, but the really important thing to say is you have to sort of think about how to design these projects so that they are productive not destructive, as you point out. Because one thing that we know from just looking at teams and anecdotally from being people is that if you're overwhelmed by stress and desperation, you often cannot sustain performance. What you are looking for is you're looking for just enough discomfort, just enough desperation to kick yourself out of the rut of doing things just the old way, of not working with new people, of only working the same way you've always thought of working for the same desired outcomes to try new things. And designing your desperation projects for yourself or for your team so that you are able to take advantage of the getting pride out of the rut effect of desperation without suffering the crushed and totally dispirited by desperation. There is a fine line to be drawn. And that's what makes a project, a desperation project that's productive rather than one which is neither productive because it's not desperate or too desperate and therefore also not productive. But overall, the whole point of it is it's a way to get over the fear and desperation and discomfort by forcing yourself to do it, right? Instead of kind of giving yourself the traditional job scope, which is, do something which is within the ability of the team, which is obviously going to be comfortable, and therefore results in no innovation at all.
1: <laughs> I was just thinking; uh, I can imagine the innovators now tied to their seat at the boardroom table, and kind of going, "You go on without me, guys. <laughs> Save yourself." <laughs> all right, last one for you, Vaughn, because I know you're under time pressure. <laughs> um, I mentioned this at the start, and I think it's so important, and it's it's so seldom discussed. So you say innovation work is messy, uncertain, and interpretive. It is emotionally difficult above all else. Though the cognitive and technical challenges of innovation are always highlighted, the emotional and effective challenges are seldom identified, let alone discussed. I thought we'd leave our show today on this because this is so important because so many innovators I know, so many change makers, so many catalysts within organizations struggle because they feel isolated, they feel ostracized, they feel misunderstood, and it can be emotionally very challenging.
0: I I completely agree. It's not only the fact that you work differently and you have to think differently from other people who are not tasked with coming up with new ideas. I think that's definitely emotionally challenging. But I think the work of doing innovation itself is emotionally challenging. It's draining to always be failing, right? Because we have fun when we succeed. And it's kind of a downer to try something, invest some time in it, or effort, or energy, or reputation, and have it not work. And so, one thing which I've, I I thought about when I was writing the book, and certainly since writing the book, I now think about it a lot more, and I'm even more convinced now. It's that a huge part of making an organization able to innovate and helping people to innovate is to acknowledge the fact that it's hard, but it's not hard for the same way for for the same reasons that. Producing a lot of the same thing with great consistency is hard. That's hard, too. And it's challenging for a different reason. Innovation is hard because you never know whether or not you're succeeding. You never know what you're really aiming for. Your success cannot be measured conventionally. And you fail all the time. Now, if we can admit that, I think it just becomes easier to deal with it, right? It's like the first step of dealing with the demon is to name it. So we always talk about innovation as being a very technically, cognitively complex thing. It is also a technically, cognitively complex thing. But apart from that, it's an emotionally very, very difficult thing to do. And we don't talk about it at all. And so we have no sort of way of framing the work so that we know that this is how we're supposed to be feeling as we're we're coming up with new things. Uh, We know that it's supposed to feel intimidating to be working on something but not knowing how to do it or what it's supposed to achieve, all of these things, we should be talking about it because this is a part of innovation work, right? It is part of the it is part of the basic structure of doing innovation that if we understood it in this way, A, we would attract more of the right people to do it, you know, people who are okay with it. They may not be happy with it, but they're certainly okay with the idea of failing all the time. And if we start talking about it more, I think management of innovation becomes less about let's hire people with the right smarts. It's also about hiring people with the right gut, right? Like the right affective makeup and also the smarts so that not only do they know how to ask questions and experiment, there are also people who can deal with the vicissitudes of constant failure of uncertainty better than people who, honestly, it's not like this is good or bad. It's just if you are bad at dealing with uncertainty, don't go into innovation. If you're good at dealing with uncertainty, maybe that's a job for you, right? And I think acknowledging all these things, not only as a leader, but also as, an, as a hiring organization, as an L&D organization, acknowledging all that and tailoring programs and policies to it, I think will just make organizations, A, better places where people come into the organization and do the kinds of work that they are temperamentally as well as cognitively suited for, but also makes the organization, therefore, a more interesting and more innovative one because the people who are doing the uncertain work are people who are both okay with uncertainty and also have decided because they know, they've decided that they want to do this work because it is uncertain work. And to me, that would be a good outcome of the book. If people read it and like came to realize that maybe we should think about the effect and the emotional side of innovation a lot more.
1: And it certainly does that Vaughn. It's an absolutely fabulous book. I have a copy up for grabs, just sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter, and you'll be in with a chance to win that Vaughn. for people who want to find out more about you and your work, your writing, your consultancy, where can they find you?
0: My website is Vaughan You can find out more about the book at the uncertainty mindset.org. I'm also on Twitter at Vaughn underscore 10. And in fact, I have a new project, which I mentioned to you before, which is a tool to train people in becoming more comfortable with being productively uncomfortable. And you can look for that at productivediscomfort.org.
1: Beautiful. Author of Uncertainty Mindset, Innovation Insights from the Frontiers of Food, Vaughan Tan. Thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. It's been a great pleasure. We really appreciate <laughs> both the very intentional framing of you know bringing it out, And the very specific questions uh, around uh, the content of the book itself. Very much appreciate it.
1: Uh, Absolute pleasure, man. Thanks as always to our sponsor Zai. For those of you watching us on YouTube, hopefully you've noticed our new cameras and our new lighting. That is thanks to the sponsorship. Zai is a global financial services company specializing in foreign exchange and payments, and supporting innovation in all its forms, including this show. Our thanks to them. Check them out at hellozai.com.